You're listening to Thulos, a podcast of the Ephesus School Network. Thulos explores servant leadership as an Orthodox Christian. I'm Holly Benton, your host and executive director of the Orthodox Christian Leadership Initiative. I'm excited to share a four-part series with Father Sergis Halverson on exploring humility and authority as a servant leader in the Orthodox Church. Father Sergis was an early partner in developing the intensive program in servant leadership through the Orthodox Christian Leadership Initiative, designed to support parish leaders to lead as a doulos or servant so that their parishes and extended communities that they serve might flourish as the body of Christ. Father Sergis Halverson is assistant professor of homiletics and rhetoric at St. Vladimir's Orthodox Theological Seminary, and he's the director of the Doctor of Ministry program there. His seminary courses include homiletics, rhetoric, Christian education, Orthodox Christian apologetics, and faith and science. Welcome to the show, Father Sergis. Holly, thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to be here, and I can't tell you how much I have enjoyed and appreciated and am grateful for the wonderful work that you and the entire Orthodox Christian Leadership Initiative team are doing specifically regarding this Dulos Servant Project. So thank you for all the great work that you're doing. Thank God. God's the one who provides. Amen. You know, at last year's National Leadership Conference, you presented a foundational piece for the Dulos Program and Servant Leadership entitled Christlike Humility and Authority. Your title, Father Sergis, is very intriguing. It contains two terms that on face value seem opposed, humility on the one hand, authority on the other hand. Say a bit about this tension, Father Sergis, between humility and authority. Sure. Well, certainly most people that you would ask, you know, if you stop someone on the street and ask them to define humility and authority, they would see them as mutually exclusive. Most people would say that somebody's either humble or they have authority. Most people in the society think that if you're humble, then you're basically some sort of cowardly sycophant, right? You have no spine. um, You have no conviction. You're just a pushover. You're constantly looking to glean curry favor from whoever's around you. On the other hand, if you have authority, then you'd be hard driving. You'd be some sort of tyrant who crushes people to get ahead in the competition, to lead the team to victory at all costs. So most people would say that humility and authority are mutually exclusive. But in Christ, we see that scripture defines humility and authority as entirely compatible. In fact, according to scripture, you must be humble if you are to have authority and to do God's will uh, and vice versa. If you're in authority, you must be humble in order to do God's will. If you have one without the other, you're doing something else. You're not doing God's will. Just to give our listeners a little bit of a, a roadmap here, I think what we're going to do is explore what false authority, what is not Christ-like authority, and then we'll move into the notion of humility and what is not Christ-like humility. And then we'll explore what is Christ-like humility and what is Christ-like authority. Great. So let's explore a little bit about the notion of what authority is not. In designing our servant leadership program, we propose that false authority usurps the power of the scriptural commandment to assume the place of God. We know if we scroll for 10 seconds on Facebook, we can really recognize the problems with false authority. Self-righteousness seeps out everywhere. What are some of the other examples that we see of false authority? I'm glad you raised the example of social media. It's a real temptation for me, I have to say. Something about you know false authority, first of all, has to do with pride and it has to do with my own glory. 
it basically is about how can I create my own glory? How can I set myself up? How can I get more followers? How can I beat down my opponents? How can I get more popularity and fame? But one of the first things that I have to, you know, should confess and continually confess is that I am tempted by this, right? This is an incredibly powerful temptation. With the advent of social media, it's everywhere, right? You just, you know, you have so many apps and it's all over the place. So I'm constantly tempted to go there. But false authority is so destructive. If I am looking to increase my own power, then I might be pursuing the authority of the world, but I'm certainly not pursuing Christ-like authority. So in light of scripture, false authority is the desire to increase my own power. And that's so alluring, right? Social media and the media in general, you know, lifts up people who have accrued as much power as they can possibly have for themselves. I would say that false authority is anytime I force someone to serve me, anytime I force someone to conform to my will, then that would be false authority. Because I'm not doing God's will. I'm actually forcing other people to please me, to to bring me power and glory and pleasure. Yeah. So should we look at some of the examples of how false authority is shown in scripture? Oh, absolutely. You know, one of the ones that immediately jumps out of the pages of scripture to me is the incident with King David and uh, Uriah and uh, his wife Bathsheba. Mm -hmm. We're all pretty familiar with that story. David, the king, God's anointed, he exercises false authority in forcing others to conform to his will. As God's anointed, as the king of God's people, David had that authority to lead the people in battle, to exercise justice. God did not give David this authority to commit adultery and to cover up his sin with murder, which is what he did, right? He Mm -hmm. saw Bathsheba, he lured her in, he had an affair with her, realized that she was pregnant by him, and then he calls Uriah back from the uh, battle, from the war, basically tries to trick him into sleeping with his wife so that he can have plausible deniability about the paternity of his child. And Uriah, who's a very faithful, obedient to the law and the commands of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he says, well, I've basically been consecrated to this work, this battle, and I, I cannot have strong drink. I cannot you know, have pleasure. I'm not going to sleep with my wife. He's basically living this kind of aesthetical life while he's in battle. And David says, well, gosh, I got to somehow get this guy to sleep with his wife. So he invites him to dinner and tries to get him drunk. And again, Uriah says, no, I can't do this. He politely declines the hospitality of the king. And then when Uriah goes back to the battle, of course, David commands that he be sent to the very front where he gets shot up with arrows and he dies. So again, it's just such an egregious example of somebody using authority for their own glory, for their own pleasure. David used his authority to serve himself. So it was false authority. And of course, we know that God sent the prophet Nathan to critique him, to call him to repentance. And Nathan does this in a very clever, genius way. He basically tells him the story about, you know, the two men. One was very poor. He had one sheep. Another was rich. He had many flocks. And a guest comes. And rather than preparing one of his own lambs for the meal for this guest, uh, he goes and he takes the uh, the one ewe lamb of the poor man. And uh, Nathan's spinning this tale in a very dramatic way. You know, he says, this lamb was so dear to this poor man and his family. He was like a child. So the rich man comes and takes away this precious ewe lamb and kills it and feeds it to his guest. And then, of course, you know, King David is just irate. He's filled with this righteous indignation. And he says, by God, the rich man who did this wicked thing, you know, he should die for his sinfulness. And then Nathan says, you are the man. Mm -hmm. Wonderful zinger, right? You are the man. And of course, then David immediately realizes, 
what he's done. And this brings him to repentance. So when David uses his God-given position to serve himself, to gratify his own passions, to stroke his own ego, to bring himself comfort and pleasure, he usurped the power of the scriptural commandment. And he assumed, or at least he tried, to assume the place of God. Thinking he had all power in the position as king to do as he wished. Exactly. Any other scriptural examples you want to bring out? In Exodus, God repeatedly tells Pharaoh through Moses, let my people go that they may serve me. This is a very interesting point. It says this over and over. Let my people go so that they may serve me. And whether it be David or whether it be someone else, the critical point here is that if we are using our power to force or coerce someone to serve us, then essentially I'm setting myself up as an idol. If I tell anyone, serve me, this is in contradiction to the word of God, where God is saying, let the people go, set them free so that they serve God. They may serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's really important, that idea of service. If I'm in a position of authority, what am I asking those under my authority to do? So if I'm asking them to serve me, then that's a huge problem. And we can just talk about this idea of an idol for a moment. Certainly, idolatry is a key problem. It comes up again and again and again throughout scripture. Mm -hmm. So another way to look at this idea of making myself an idol is that if I force others to serve me, then I'm attempting to take the place of God. I'm trying to have people serve me and not God. And anyone or anything that we serve other than God is an idol. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So this is really, really important for, for me to keep in mind in terms of how do I exercise whatever authority God has given me. But I certainly don't want to set myself up as an idol. I don't want to set myself up as a false god. Now, another biblical example, um, a wonderful one about false authority, would be Jesus' parable of the wicked servant in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18. We all know this story pretty well. There's this servant who has this unbelievable debt you know, millions and millions of dollars, right? Just it, it, ridiculous debt. The master is basically calling in his debts and the man shows up and there's no possible way that he can pay his debt and he begs for mercy. And so the master forgives him this huge debt. No sooner has the wicked servant been forgiven this immense debt that he goes out and he tracks down this person who owes him a tiny fraction of what he owed the master. Just, you know, let's say a couple hundred bucks, something small. And this wicked servant, he tracks down the guy and he demands that he pay back his entire debt. And of course, the man, he begs the wicked servant to have mercy on him, give me time to pay it off. But the wicked servant is utterly merciless. He decides he's going to have him thrown into prison. He's going to prosecute him under the full extent of the law until he pays off his full debt. And ultimately, the master learns about how the wicked servant exercised this false authority. And so again, the, the wicked servant who's received mercy, he shows no mercy. And he uses his authority. He has this authority under the law to force the other guy to pay him back. When the master hears about the wicked servants exercising this false authority, basically doing this wicked deed, he's furious and he casts the wicked servant into prison. Jesus concludes this parable by saying, so my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is Matthew 18.35. Jesus concludes that parable with a really strong word regarding the consequences for exercising false authority. I'm also thinking of the story of Herodias's daughter. You know, she came in and danced before Herod to please his guests. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you even half my kingdom. 
they're all using their position to try to get what they want. Herod is trying to please his guests. The girl is trying to gain favor with the guests, with Herod, with her mother. And then the mother uses her influence to try to get what she wants, which is the head of John the Baptist on the platter. And all of them are usurping the place of God to get what they want. Absolutely. Thanks for bringing up that story. That's a powerful, graphic, uh, gruesome example of false authority. What they're doing to please themselves, to advance their own position. And as you pointed out, each one of the three has their own kind of agenda, but they're doing it at the expense of others. John the Baptist, he has zero value to them as a human being. He's basically just a pawn in their larger agenda to get what they want. That's a classic, fundamental, tragic example of what the exercise of false authority does. It reduces the neighbor to a pawn. It reduces the neighbor to a piece of currency or some sort of disposable tool that I can use once and then throw away or grind up and bury if that suits my needs. And that's utterly and totally contrary to the gospel. And what's fascinating about that story, even John the Baptist's value was even beyond his own life as a human being. His value was the word that he preached. And what's ironic is as they tried to squelch the word of God and manage it and manipulate it, because they beheaded him, the word was made glorified all the more. Exactly. And the other thing, too, in the false wisdom of the world, humility and authority are opposed. But the other thing, too, that's important to keep in mind is that according to the false wisdom of the world, this exercise of this kind of worldly, violent, evil kind of exercise of authority, the the lie is that you'll actually have a good life if you do this. Mm -hmm. Herodias and Herodias' daughter and Herod, they all ended up better off because they did this horrible, evil thing. But that's totally not the case. I mean, it's utterly, utterly wrong. Because at the end of the day, using false authority, I mean, the example I like, is burning your house to stay warm in the middle of winter. (laughs) For a very small amount of time, you might gain a slight amount of pleasure, but in the end, you're left homeless and freezing to death. Even if you're the wealthiest person in the world, or even if you're the emperor of Rome, if you're functioning in this realm of exercising false authority, you you have no peace. Because the more you exercise false authority, the more you're terrified that someone else is going to do it to you. It creates this horrible feedback loop. The more false authority you exercise, you gain a little bit, but then you're even more frightened that someone else is going to do to you what you did to them. So it's this horrible, horrible cycle that ultimately leads to this living hell, really. Right. The Lord knew what he was doing when these stories came to us through scripture, because we reckon with false authority in ourselves all the time. What are some of the most insidious ways that you see it being played out, unfortunately, even in the church today? Boy, that's a great question. You know, I think I'm going to turn the question around because what I will talk about is how I see it playing out in myself. One of the things that I'm tempted to most is, I believe it's an exercise of false authority. If I take my binoculars out and look around and try to see, okay, how are other people using false authority? Mm -hmm. In a way, just me asking that question is an exercise of false authority because basically, well, who appointed me judge over my neighbor, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) So, So I would say right there, that's one of the ways that I'm tempted incredibly severely. I'm so sorely tempted to look and try to find my neighbor's sin. Another example of how I'm tempted to exercise false authority within the church and this is really insidious, is how easy it is, especially for a person, you know, I'm a priest, uh, you know, I teach at a seminary, so I have a position. And it's so horribly tempting 
to conflate my will with God's will, to basically say, well, I need you to do this because it's God's will, or even to tell myself, like, oh, this is God's will. But in fact, if I really look at it and I say, okay, what am I trying to do here? Am I just trying to make my life more cozy? Am I just trying to bring myself more pleasure? Am I trying to lift up my reputation? Am I trying to make myself more famous? At the end of the day, like St. John the Baptist, he must increase and I must decrease. Right. Perhaps the most perfect antidote to false humility. If I'm really doing what God calls me to do within the life of the church, if I'm truly living as an Orthodox Christian, if I'm truly living according to scripture, then in everything I do, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know, the Father, our Lord, and Savior, Jesus Christ, he must increase and I must decrease. Right. But of course, the temptation is the other way around. <laughs> like, I want to kind of hop on Jesus's back and ride him to glory, you know, and look at the other people around and say, hey, look, look at where I am. Look at my position. Those are some of the really bad temptations that I face. But it's, it's all the time. I mean, it's constantly, you know, every moment of every day. And I'm not good at it. But I know that every moment of every day, I have to give myself these wake up calls. Like, what am I doing? Am I decreasing so that God might be glorified? Is what I'm doing so that the gospel of Jesus Christ might be more like you said, when John was beheaded, the word, uh, the biblical word of God was more boldly proclaimed, more boldly announced. So as I am decreasing, if the word of God is increasing, then I'm on the right track. But if I'm increasing, then it's always kind of a warning sign. Any closing words on false authority? At the end of the day, like we said before, false authority always ends up in disaster. Because as we know from scripture, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob does not take kindly to idolatry, nor does he take kindly to blasphemy. Anytime I try to set myself up as the one to be served, to be glorified, then it's not going to end well. It probably won't end well in this life, and it certainly won't end well on the last day. Right. So just to close out this episode and say just a word about where we're going to go with our next segment, perhaps the most dramatic example of false authority in the gospel would be Pontius Pilate. He knows that Jesus is innocent. He knows that he's done nothing deserving death. But in order to protect his own political career, he condemns an innocent man to be beaten, tortured, mocked, paraded through the city, and executed by being nailed to the cross. And that's just an egregious example of false authority. But what makes it really bad, and what we'll come to next week, is that he attempts to cover up his sin by false humility. Oh, so we've got to listen to next week to hear more about false humility. Exciting. (laughs) There we go. Or you can just open up the gospel and read for yourself. (laughs) That's right. 